Today on the show, I am very excited to be joined by Vancouver City Councilor Rebecca Bly. Rebecca was elected in 2018 and currently sits as the only independent member on council. In addition to her role as city councillor, she's a mother of two. She sits on the board of directors for the Federation of Canadian Municipalities and is vice chair of the Municipal Infrastructure and Transportation Policy. A passionate supporter of families, education, and the environment. Welcome to the show and thanks for being with us today, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me. Now, just before uh, we start, I did listen to your podcast with Mo Amir. It's a great host. Uh, it was a very in, uh, interesting conversation. You guys spent a lot of time talking about the NPA, so we're going to dive into that a little bit near the end if we have time. But what I want to spend our time spoke, speaking about right now is we're going to start talking uh, about a very newsworthy topic, which is this, as you guys described, pandemic shelters, mm-hmm. uh, or I'm, I've, t- I've tagged it as that. And I'd also like to talk about on the theme of housing, about multifamily dwelling. Um, and then if we have time, I'd like to actually spend a little bit of time talking about the, the NPA and city council. Um, but before we start all that, let's get a little bit of your history. Cause I think some people have what might be pre- preconceived notions of who you might be. And so let's just hear it. How did you, can you maybe give us a little bit of your background Sure. and how you got into this and who Rebecca Bly is? Sure. Okay. That's a big question. I'll do my best. Um, so how I got into, um, well, really where my life began, I would say, um, took off is when I was 21 years old and I um, um, had a baby and found myself um, making a very challenging decision, of course, but uh, the right decision for me, which was to, um, when I found out I was pregnant, is to have my daughter. And um, and I was 21, living in Vancouver. I had family around me, but they were all still pretty young themselves. My parents, um, busy working and whatnot. So, um, and I, um, yeah, really, I was in I was in school and had a part time job and left all that to pursue creating a found a home and a stable foundation for my uh, to raise my daughter. And um, I would say that if there was a milestone in my life where my life really got going, it was certainly that uh, that year, which was 1999. She was born in 2000. Yeah. Wow. And you made a mention just before we started filming about a building that has kind of got stuck in your memory of where oh, yeah. you went with your daughter when you first uh, when she was first born and you left the hospital. Yes. Yeah, so uh, I think it's a pretty iconic um, Vancouver intersection, the Spy Store. Most people, when I mention yeah. that, know exactly what building I'm talking about at Broad and, uh, Broadway there. Yeah. Um, so that was the uh, three or two store, three story walk up we lived in. And um and that's where my life started. And funny enough, I, I ended up uh, moving back to that after a few moves with her, as you do. I ended up moving back to that area and lived in South Granville for about uh, 14 years, um, right through for her sort of elementary school years. So, yeah, the spy store was where it all began. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so so for those of some of you may some of you may think that Rebecca is this, um, you know, woman who's had lots of privilege, but it sounds like you've actually had a, a bit of a tough go, especially in your early state, early days, and you, you persevered. I mean, I can't imagine how I've got three kids myself and my wife is a champ for you to raise a child on your own. Man, that's a that's a tough go, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, in, in hindsight, I, I'm very proud of um, the life that I created for my daughter and then my son. And of course, um, um, there, there was... Uh, family around me but at the end of the day it's just you and the baby that goes home and you sure. get things going but um it really gave me a lot of purpose to um uh work hard and i had an incredible opportunity to work with a vancouver startup company um on the west side and spent 14 years um, building that company so had a real great opportunity in business uh, working side by side with the owner, who was only a couple years older than me, actually, yeah, um, and and built this great company and bought companies and and just had a chance to have a real education, hands-on education, yeah, um, in um, in business and and also just building that sort of grit and resiliency that even though you're paycheck to paycheck, daycare was still really expensive in those days, as was rent. Yeah, it's more now. Um, that just sort of show up every day and work as hard as you can to um, um, keep it all going and make pull it all together. And now she's 20 and on her way. And yeah, I'm really proud of that story. Yeah. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. Now, now you've been city councilor since 2018. You're not a lifelong politician by any stretch. Yeah. 
Um, how's the transition been for you going from working in what would be often described as private industry yes. to being in public office? At first, uh, I was sort of confused at all the protocol and the speed or the lack of speed of which we get things done in government. And uh -huh. that was probably the most significant challenge um, to start with. And um, But then once you get rolling with how things go and the process and whatnot, um, you sort of learn quickly how to navigate that process and move critical issues forward. Um, it's a lot of time away from family, actually. Our mm -hmm. meetings are extremely long, as you probably know, since COVID, of course, they're virtual, but we're still sort of in front of a screen. And um, it's not the kind of job that you can juggle many things at one time. You just have to be really fully engaged. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of details, of course. So um, thankfully, my kids are older. I know there are people on council that have young kids. Um, my kids are a little bit older now, 15 and 20. So it's created some space. But yeah, yeah. I mean, the private sector business, I think a lot of it is very much related to and relevant in public office, especially at the local level. Mm -hmm. um, it certainly had me come in as a new city councilor with a lens on s small business. And right. I know from my own experience, if a small business owner hadn't sort of given me at the chance um, when I got that chance, it would have been very different for me. Yeah. So um, it's sort of personal to me that we really support our small business and do our very best to um, create a city where they can thrive. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I fully agree with that. I had uh, George Affleck. I'm oh, yeah. sure you know who George is on uh, just recently. And he said that um, one of the things that you have to know going into government is that uh, you can't run the, you, you're just not able to run government the way you run a business. Things no. just don't move the same way. Is it is it deflating at all as someone who comes in from the private sector where you're kind of like a hustler, you're used to getting things done, you know, and logical decisions are made and there's not a lot of, you know, you just kind of fly by the seat of your pants at times and just get stuff done. And then you come into the system that seems to me to be, and you're only at the municipal system. I can only imagine that provincially oh, yeah. or federally how much more difficult it must be. Mm -hmm. Does it become deflating at all for you or uninspiring? You know, I think that much like uh, in the private sector, especially if you're in, in a sales type field, um, you kind of get that jolt of energy after you've been working so hard to cross something, you know, to, to get something across the finish line, so to speak. That same sort of adrenaline and, and excitement and um, happens in local government because if you're championing an issue and you've workshopped it around and you're talking to other councils, you're talking to staff, you're talking to stakeholders in the public, and then it gets um, voted on and approved by council, it's a huge win. You don't get the financial return <laughs> usually <laughs> that you would if you were in sales where there's a commission or something. Of course, that's not yeah. happening. But I think that really indicates to you if you're in the right job, because if you get that kind of satisfaction, right. even though it's not monetary, you're probably yeah. in the right seat. And that for me has been um, quite eye opening, having yeah. been in lots of different departments, but I have spent a lot of time in sales, yeah. getting that rush of a deal. Yeah. But this... And that's a good point because turns out you don't need the money actually if you're really if your heart's in the issue that you're trying to get across the line. Sure. Yeah. And look, most good salespeople I know, it's not money that drives no, them anyways. I don't think They're just so incredibly competitive people that love a win, and uh, those, and they believe in what they're selling. Yeah. Is usually yeah. what, it, what it comes down to. Yeah. And the big wins don't ever happen quickly. Rarely do they do. It's uh, right. It, 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 like so. It sounds to me maybe it's a similar experience. Yeah. Well, on that note, talking about big wins. Um, Let's start with uh, pandemic shelters. So Strathcona Park is a site of Vancouver's largest tent city. Uh, there's a hundred, there are hundreds of people uh, without homes that have erected tents uh, back in June of this year, June 2020, after being evicted from Oppenheimer Park and the Port of Vancouver parking lot. Uh, Vancouver City Council unanimously approved a $30 million, uh, $30 million to house people who are homeless into hotels and commercial sites across the city. That's the kind of headline news that I wrote down and read verbatim. So right. can you, for those people who are listening that maybe are only about as familiar with the downtown east side and the homeless issue from what we might see in the news or the odd time that we're driving along East Hastings there, can you tell us what this means for the city and for those living in these tents in Strathcona Park? And, sure. what, and what the announcement, highlight what this announcement is about. Okay. 
So um, yes, there's a lot in those headlines. So let me yeah. try and break it down a little bit. Um, I want to start by really saying that this is not about stigmatizing people who are struggling with homelessness. It's certainly not about criminalizing that um, that issue, that very real issue that we deal with in Vancouver on a chronic level, I would say, but it's a regional issue. Um, but it's it had come to a point at Strathcona Park with over 500 tents, um, the largest encampment in Vancouver, the largest encampment in Vancouver, or sorry, in Canada, the largest, but certainly the largest that Vancouver's dealt with. Um, and the situation had a number of, um, and an escalating issue around public safety. And um, of course, it's 80% of the public green space and park space for a highly dense neighborhood like Strathcona. And it had been completely um, taken over by tents. And, um, you know, it was a difficult situation because the residents both housed and unhoused, there's an element of um, concern for one's own safety. Of course, there's lots of kids in that neighborhood. There's a lot of um, disorder, uh, crime stats were going through the roof in the last month. So we really um, got to work uh, working with the park board and also the um, stakeholders and, and um, people in and around the park to say, look, we can't just let this be. Creating enough stable, um, supportive housing for everybody in Vancouver. We have about 2,000 precariously housed and 750 people living on the street is gonna take time. And we can't just let Strathcona Park grow in terms of being an out of control situation. Um, so part of the pandemic shelter was really to, um, the park board cannot, a uh, park board has ju jurisdiction over the park, which is unique in Vancouver. That isn't the case in other municipalities. So we have a park board, ultimate jurisdiction. But what they needed is to make sure that people in the park had somewhere to go when they were asked to leave the park. And so city responsibility, I think, and ultimately it's the province and the federal government for building the housing. But for us, we have to sure. take care of public self safety and public realm. And so there was an element of responsibility that we had to partner with the park board so that we can create what we've coined a triage type model um, that would basically have a place where people can go that we're no longer allowed to just stay in the park indefinitely. So this announcement is not by any means a permanent solution. This is a temporary, as you'd mentioned, a triage to get uh, uh, get these uh, poor people out of these tents and into a bit more of a stable environment. Is that a good description? Yes, exactly. People struggling with homelessness have very unique needs. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of triage is to really understand what is it that they need. Some people, we heard from people, they came to speak to council. Um, homeless and, people. Uh, pe yeah, people struggling mm -hmm. with homelessness came to speak to council and they said they, um, you know, some really needed sober uh, facilities. Um, so they've maybe at some point had addiction challenges and they've now come off of the, that, that those drugs are alcohol and they now want a sober, um, they need sober space. Uh, some people actually, we heard from people who have families who need housing that in order for them to be able to get their children back. Oh, and wow. that's a really difficult situation. And they're also looking for work. So there's another, there's an added layer there. Mm -hmm. uh, and then some people have been living on the streets for 10 plus years that are, oh. yeah, looking for something more permanent and stable. So it's a very complex challenge, um, but I think we need to start with understanding what are the needs, what are the numbers around those needs, and start to design and st strategize about delivering that housing based on the need that we know we have in Vancouver. Okay. One thing I will just correct in the headlines is that sure. um, Oppenheimer, they didn't get kicked out of Oppenheimer. Uh, that encampment actually was closed down by the province because that was exactly when the pandemic hit and there was a real concern around an outbreak in the downtown east side. I see. They were moved to the Howard Johnson. Mm. Uh, there's been a lot of learnings there. We might get into that um, around that knock-on effect of disorder and what have you happening in Granville Street and the Yelton area. Um, what, who went to Crab Park was the there's a contingent around these encampments that is actually a, a protest and it's um, a protest against systemic, um, um, I think, letdowns, to be quite honest, over mm -hmm. decades related to indigenous rights and housing and social supports and things like that. So they okay. went to Crab Park okay. and that quickly was dissipated uh, or dispersed, I should say, by the port. By the port. Sorry. And then they okay. went to Strathcona. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So this $30 million, mm -hmm. what, what, what is that for and, and where is that money coming from? Right. So the $30 million is an initiative by the mayor okay. um, that basically 
has um, staff source hotels. So hotels that are obviously sitting empty because of the pandemic or other reasons. And 30 million was to go and look at how we can lease hotel rooms uh, and eventually purchase um, unused hotels or empty buildings for housing. Okay. Um, so the $30 million is coming out of the pockets of Vancouver taxpayers effectively. This is coming out of city of Vancouver funds? Well, not exactly. Okay. So the federal government announced a $1 billion investment into housing specifically okay. and at the local level, meaning not necessarily filtering through the province. Right. That money is going to come directly to municipalities. Okay. So we see Edmonton and other cities across the country who are looking at um, hotel acquisitions as a strategy to find housing. Um, and of course, they're very expensive purchases. So 30 million is the number that the mayor brought forward and amendments by the councillors, the amendment with the pandemic shelter, um, all meant that that money was, uh, the delivery of those services was contingent on um, the federal government delivering the, um, what we expect to be in the tens of millions of dollars towards housing initiatives. Oh, I see. However, if that wasn't to happen, that 30 million is already in our capital plan. It's okay. not an additional 30 million okay. and it's paid for through development cost levies and our affordable housing program. So yeah. taxes like the empty homes tax. Okay. So it's it's not something that we're going to take property tax money revenue mm -hmm. and and pay 30 million for hotels. That's right. not the strategy. Yeah. I don't think that would have the, the empty no. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> the empty homes tax has it been generating much in the way of extra revenue for the city? Actually, that was the number, $30 million that It, it was, that, huh? Yeah, last year. Wow. Actually collected? Actually collected. Wow, impressive. Yeah. yeah. I was pretty cynical of that. Uh, I didn't think that the city would actually be able to pull that off, but it sounds like they have. Yeah, and it, it sounds like it's, you know, um, it's delivering housing back to the community some, not as much, mm -hmm. I think, as people hoped. Yeah. But th those that are willing to pay the tax are paying it, and it's yeah. going directly to create more affordable housing. Right. Yeah. How quickly of a turnaround time will it be from this? Uh, I mean, th this was just approved yesterday. Yeah. Right. So, like, like, w if I'm uh, again, I'm just thinking in you know simple terms, a uh, outsider not being involved in regular civic politics. Yeah. I see this announcement. If I were to drive by Strathcona Park, it's uh, October now. If I were to drive by there in January, February, I'm going to still see a bunch of tents there. I would be shocked if you did. Absolutely oh, not. so it's gonna move quick. Oh yes. Um, the idea here is not the thirty million is not to go and buy hotels. It's just to basically negotiate lease, with hotel likely. To, to lease. And but uh, but just to yeah, be yeah. clear, leasing hotel rooms, you're not really getting top value for your money. No, because I'm sure leases you're not. are very expensive. So yeah. the idea, the ideal situation is we create a mid to long term strategy around land yeah. acquisition that have sure. established. Yeah, again, this is a temporary measure. This to is get a temp people out of out of tents. Well, the pandemic shelters is we have yeah. winter shelters. They already exist. They could be up and running, hopefully within four to six weeks. Right. But what it does do is it actually indicates to the park board that the city has now direction from council to go into the park. Like right now, we're this the camp protest do not allow even VPD into the park, which I know is going to be quite shocking to your listeners. Really? Yes. The VPD can't even get in there? No, uh, unless they force their way in, which has not been what That's they wanted to do. Seen. And it's not something they can do on their own, actually. Um, yeah. they So they needed council's support and, indi and indication through a motion, which was supported, um, to to disperse the park. I think right. that's really what the goal is right. and also enables the police to enter. But we, be... we really don't want to get there with yeah. a legal action. I think sure. our city staff are very skilled in doing this work, Yeah, partnering with Park Board and other organizations like PHS, who are a outreach uh, organization, not for profit. Right. I think we can manage the situation and hope that police wouldn't ever have to get involved. But eventually right. everyone's got to move on out of the park. Yeah. Okay, that's the simple message there. Yeah, Rebecca, this of the thirty million dollars, is any of this money going to go towards anything other than just effective shelter? Like, is there any? Because I, I had Sam Sullivan in, and we mm. he actually talked about the Howard Johnson, and one of the criticisms, of course, that you hear from the uh, well, you know the liberals mm -hmm. about the NDP and their housing strategy is that yeah, maybe they may be building more housing uh, for home for people dealing with homelessness. But there's not enough supportive services around that. And from what I understand, what I've heard uh, from people like Mark Tyndall, who's also been on the show, 
is that um, if you just create a home for somebody, it's obviously a big step, but it, that it shouldn't end there. Uh, because if there's someone dealing with addiction issues or whatever, there's going to be need to be more mental health issues. There's going to be more support needed. So is that involved in this triage program that you guys have approved yesterday uh, with that 30 million? Or is that money yes. just allocated to lease property? Yes. So um, I would say two things just to clear is that, you know, with the shelters, that's the triage, the pandemic shelter. Okay. And then this, the second part is the 30 million to get hotels. Either way, in both those scenarios, one is more immediate than the other. They need wraparound services, which is wrap what, around call what you're talking. Yes. Mental health support, counseling, addiction support, harm reduction. And will that be there for these people? Food, meals. Yes, that's well, that's included. It's included. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's expensive. There are operating sure. costs that we have to get uh, BC Housing on side, and we're going to be looking at, at the provincial government, which is why the timeliness of this election is challenging for people like us who are uh, local governments. So we're really hoping to get their buy-in, but um, and there's no comment really till November, so we yeah. have to kind of go at this alone and then go to the provincial government later saying, here's what we did while you were all campaigning. Right. Yeah. We really need your uh, investment here. Yeah. Um, okay, let's continue along with the housing topic. Mm -hmm. Let's jump to multifamily dwelling. Let's talk about affordable housing. So this has been a very common theme that many politicians, maybe yourself, have jumped on, whether you're running provincially, federally, or uh, definitely locally. Um, but what my observation has been is that, and I've got a lot of young people who most of them rent. They're all quite well paid. Um, very well liked. Thank you very much for all my team that helped me out every day. Um, but these are classic, like, you know, working millennial, educated millennials mm -hmm. making anywhere from as little as 50 to as high as $120,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Most of them are renting because they can't afford to buy. Mm -hmm. um, and in the last three to four years, we've had a change in largely a big change in, in local government at the city of Vancouver, mm -hmm. with yourself included. Mm -hmm. We've also had a big change provincially uh, from 2017. But in my observation, Rebecca, I haven't seen affordable housing become a reality for most of my employees. Right. So my first question is, what progress is being made so far on the front of affordable housing for people that are earning 50 to $100,000 a year? Right. So I think there's a couple things. There's, of course, affordable home ownership. Yeah. And then there's affordable housing generally, which usually means rental. And right. rental, we know in Vancouver, was not a priority for a long time up until a couple of years ago uh, or maybe five years ago. And so we're slowly seeing a lot of those projects coming on, um, uh, coming to the regular housing stock right now. Um, so there is, of course, an argument around we had no supply. And the demand's been really high, especially as you mentioned. We've got a lot of people who, in the last 10 years, left home. They live in Vancouver. They went to school and now they're working. They don't want to live at their parents' house. Yeah. Where are they going to live? I don't feel like homes have become any more affordable, whether yeah. it's to buy or to rent. Yeah. For the people who I, when I talk to my employees daily, I don't like, I don't hear them saying, oh, guess wow, what? I got right, cheap yeah, rent. <laughs> cheap, yeah, I got super cheap rent now, or oh my gosh, that house was just so cheap to buy. Yeah. No. Um, I think I saw a laneway the other day that sold for $1.7 million, and it was a 900 square foot laneway. A laneway? Yeah. So, Jesus. yeah, it's definitely not going in the reverse. Yeah. No. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of factors, as you would probably be yeah. able to educate me on in terms of what is it about the real estate market and land economics that mm -hmm. has things continuously moving up. We know interest rates are so low, but that's not enough to get people into housing. I think for most people, it's that down payment. It's actually the damage deposit, the, you know, yeah. the damage, but the yeah, down, down payment. payment yeah. yeah. So um, I think we've got to just focus on rental, to be honest. Okay. We just need to, I, I think, you know, I've had questions um, to staff around what happens when we take a uh, overly, um, a larger than average uh, lot in Vancouver and look at what it would be like to cut it into smaller lots. We know that people move out of the city and Squamish and other places on the island and they're building tiny homes on small plots of land because that's what matters to them. They want to buy something. They want to stick their shovel in the ground and know that they own it. Um, but I think that's a that's a, not really a possibility in the same way in Vancouver anymore. We have to be um, cautious around speculation and increase in land values based on the policies that we put forward. And I think that we're in the 
impact of previous policies that mm -hmm. have um, spiked land values in Vancouver now. Mm -hmm. So you just got to focus on building rental. And um, we've done a pretty good job, I would say. Our numbers are at about 2,400 units um, approved. It's nowhere near what the mayor committed to, but it's a process, as we talked about earlier, that yeah. takes a long time. Um, and maybe we could improve that process. But I say we have to focus on rental. And of course, as we increase supply, there is arguments that rents will come down. I think the jury's out on that one fully because the land cost is still the same for the builder. Right. And they still have to deliver a payment back to the bank for whoever sure. they loaned the money from. So they can't dip rents too much lower or um, they're going to be in the red and it's not sustainable. So right. I think rents. So are you're not complete. You don't I'm completely buy on in those. on the uh, the market based solution of just uh, increased supply and rents will fall like the classic. I don't know, this micro macroeconomic theory that, you know, if you, if you have a problem with pricing, you just increase the supply prices will drop. Yeah, I'm not sure how that would pencil out because mm. the lenders want to guarantee that they're going to get a certain amount of rent in their purpose-built rental buildings mm -hmm. in order to pay back the banks. Right. So how much could the rents really drop right. when that doesn't that no longer makes sense and those payments can't be made back right. to the lenders? Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's the tension that we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. um, and I also think that means let's not build anything, which I know some people feel like we shouldn't be building these big rental projects. I, I certainly vote in favor of most rental projects because yeah. I think that's what we need. But I think um, we need to be very strategic about how we build them, where they are, and the livability of these rental units that we're building. I mentioned mm -hmm. the 1.7 million for 900 square feet, but we are looking at rental projects coming before us where there's a three bedroom in 790 square feet. You have three kids. Yeah. I had two right. in about 1,500 square feet. You know, I just, so, yeah. and, and the rents are at about 3,900 to 4,000. That's crazy. Right? And that's yeah. the purpose-built rental projects we're getting right. in front of us. So we have a tough job, but um, we have to, and we every day this is what we're talking about. Yeah. How do we increase affordability and build more rental? Right. So Rebecca, I have two observations on this space. And look, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a developer. I'm, I don't go out there building properties, although I know lots of developers and um, the feedback. And I, I got to think that as city councillors, um, you've spent time talking to developers and getting their feedback. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. I don't know. Do you guys do? Oh, that? yeah. You uh, well, them? I mean, to a certain degree, not on yeah. specific projects, but we definitely have roundtables. We yeah. need to hear from industry as well as um, residents of the city that are yeah. not necessarily in industry. Yeah. So what I've heard is that the process to get a per building permit, mm -hmm. whether it's for a single family home or for a multi-residential home. I don't, I don't know about the specifics of whether things can get fast-tracked faster if it's a rental only versus like a stratified property. But from what I can gather, from what I understand, it's a it's like a painfully long and tedious process yeah. to get a building approval. Now, um, you know, I, I can see, you don't want to have as I think I said before we started filming, the, the, the Mexican style of building where you walk along a street and like every four steps, the sidewalk changes because like, you know, it's like, there's no, there's no standards for anybody. There's like a gazillion wires, live wires running across. So you don't want to have that style. Mm -hmm. But I do question whether is the city doing the best it could to ensure that these projects get moved along quickly. Like, let's get them going, folks. Let, let's yeah. let these builders not, you know, of course, we don't want to have it go too fast because what happened in the 90s is we had that leaky condo leaky problem. Condo, yeah. So you want to have a minimum standard, but do I, do Rebecca, what's your view on that? Do are are you as a city, as a city council, and is the city as a whole, the government, moving these, these things along fast enough? Well, I mean, I I'd say we're sort of this uh, interesting council term where we're sort of a bit of a catch-all for let's fix this, let's fix that, let's fix, but we have to take the time now to actually go and fix it. Right. So um, we are undertaking a regulatory review right now. Um, which basically means our um, building and licensing department. So let, just as an example, when yeah. the uh, our director of planning, Gil Kelly, when we all got elected to council, we did a briefing and he said, this was the regulations for building when he, when in like the 1950s, like literally a binder that was this thick. And now it's like, if you just stack them, it's like this. And we've never gone through and reconciled competing policies, competing regulations. And I think that is the complaint we hear a lot right. 
from builders, not to mention the actual time it takes to get a permit to even start work. Yes. Um, so we hear this feedback all the time and we channel it through to um, that particular department, which is also under new leadership and her strengths are actually in streamlining processes. So we are not there yet. It's going to okay. take some time. It's not really been looked at for 30 years and we're starting now. So does um, the mayor get that? Does he understand? Do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> I've never asked him that question. Do you get how hard this is? We all know that um, it adds to costs, right? Yeah. At the end of the day, that if a property, if a, a somebody buys land and then they have to wait two years to break ground, that all that cost goes into the affordability or lack of affordability of that final product. Yeah. Yeah. Beating that drum every yeah. day. Yeah. And how do we speed that up? Yeah. Um, I'm not, I don't have an answer for you. Okay. But we're on, but I, I think I'm just wanting to share very attuned yeah, to that sure. being a constant concern yeah. out of industry and even just independent builders that are low small project builders. Totally. Same thing. Yeah. So we, we've Absolutely. got to do better. We've yeah. got to do better at streamlining that. Um, I mean, I, I looked, I looked at a property with my realtor and of us working together on, on a project um, in kind of like Dun Dunbar and 16th and um and we were going to be willing, we were willing to pay a premium. Now this property ended up selling for above list, but it was a, call it roughly in around the $2.3 million range. Right. Uh, complete teardown, but it had already come with approved plans. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, Andrew, we got to pay at least three to $400,000 more for the fact that this is like shovel ready. And I thought to myself, that's crazy mm -hmm. that there's that much of a premium paid because it's and so to me that's reflective of how hard it is right and how long it takes and time is money and you talked about the banks and this leads into my kind of second point about maybe why we're not seeing enough rental housing only special rental rental only housing mm -hmm. um is the and this is a little bit this is out of your hands but the provincial government has uh recently last year i think it was um eliminated the ability for uh landlords to raise rents by more than inflation so it was in I think it was 2% above inflation, I think what the number was or something right. like that. So you could raise your rent by about 4% a year. Yeah. Um, and for anybody that you know owns property that's a rental property would know, it's a bit of a tough gig. Like there's no guarantees. I mean, people say, oh, that you know, the landlord's making a fortune, I'm paying their mortgage payments. And it's like, well, you know, they had to put up all the risk to take the and, and if the house gets damaged by the renter, damage pauses never come close often to covering some of those costs. Mm -hmm. Um, so do you think that's also a factor in this equation is that maybe people are going, I'm just going to sit on the sidelines. I got some property over here that I'd like to develop, but the metrics, the financial metrics to me just don't make sense. Like I, I you know, I'm not gonna be able to, council's going to take forever to approve it. And then once they approve it, I'm capped at 2% a year in ra raising my rent. Mm -hmm. Um, and I got to cover all these costs. Yeah. I mean, I just, might as well just what they call land bank it and just yeah. let it sit there, turn it into a community garden and have a low, you know, tax structure. Yes. Yes. So I think that's where we see rental incentives come into play. Okay. And that's something that, um, well, there's two things. You talk about the provincial government, the federal government um, charges GST on purpose-built rental buildings. Okay. And um, I think that that's actually, you mentioned at the beginning, I'm part of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. Yes. I'm pushing for us to um, figure out ways that we can offer some tax credits to purpose-built rental developers. Okay. Number, I think it, because I think you've got to look at it as um, a multi-prong approach. Sure. So that not just the municipality is bearing all the weight of purpose-built rental and incentivizing, oftentimes in um, what we call development cost levy fees okay. being um, waived entirely. So if a developer or builder is willing to build purpose-built rental at a certain price point per unit, then we'll waive the fees. And for some projects, that's up in the like ranges of four, or three, four, five million dollars, depending on the size of the project. So it's mm. a huge chunk of change. That seems to make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I mean, I'm, sure I mean, the, I'm sure someone will say, oh, you're getting the builders are going to get a tax break and they're going to make all this money. But what's the end goal here? Is to get more rental properties out there for people to... Yeah, but it's not hidden, right? We know if they sure. get those tax breaks, we're fact. We're, we do our own pro formas when developers are bringing their plans forward. We do. We pencil it out. They pencil it out. We compare notes and we figure out: are we, are we on the same page here? And gotcha. then what's reasonable for the market? And I think it's incremental change, but it actually is a change that in ten years we're going to see um, 
the benefits of. It's not now, it's not soon enough for people who are struggling now to find affordable housing. Yeah. But everything I think that we do here really is long-term systemic sort of sh shifts. And mm -hmm. um, that's what that's what I think we're looking at there with rental incentives. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that's helpful. Is there anything else in the world of housing in Vancouver? I mean, we talked about the homeless issue. We talked about the development and rental only housing. But is there any, before we jump on to our next topic, is there anything that I've missed or anything you want to highlight about mm -hmm. house, housing and afford, you know live, living in Vancouver? Well, it's a huge topic. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty, it's a pretty Could do a whole podcast. Topic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because there's very differing views on the way things should be done. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, what I would like your listeners to know is that we are undertaking um, a citywide planning process called the Vancouver Plan. It's actually VancouverPlan.ca. Uh, that plan hasn't been updated since the early 50s, the Bartholomew um, plan that was sort of renowned and also a lot of the issues we deal with these days that people are up in arms about around exclusive zoning and things like that was all in that plan. And I think that that is a huge opportunity for us as a city to look and see what is the city that we're building for 30 to 50 years out and get the input of people who planning to raise a family here, planning to be grandparents here. You talk about the young people that work for you. Yeah. Can they take that mental leap into, okay, when I'm 60, or when I'm 70 and I got grandkids, what kind of city is this going to be for my family? Right. Um, and that's the planning process that we're undergoing right now. And more than ever, we need to hear from more people. You talk about people who sure. are civically engaged. This is an eff effort, I think, that matters most to the future of the city. Yeah. And we're actually not getting as much engagement as we would like. So there you go. I've just made a plug. Okay, there you go. There's a plug. If you are if you at don't all like the way the city's if you don't like the way things are, going, please tell us. Call Rebecca. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <Give> no. her... <laughs> During <laughs> no, office hours. Absolutely. Okay. But, uh, and be kind. Yeah. This is Bonnie Henry says. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, that, Rebecca, that's good. Let's lighten this up. Sure. Let's jump on a topic that I actually am passionate about. It's probably not a big deal for some people, but it's your patio program. Mm. So before COVID-19, there were very few food and beverage establishments that had outdoor patio options here in Vancouver. And I got the pleasure, I get the pleasure in my work of traveling across the country. And there's some really neat towns from Moncton uh, in New Brunswick. And the one that I'm going to mention is Stephen Avenue in Calgary. I don't know if you're familiar with no. Stephen Avenue in Calgary, but it's right downtown. Okay. And uh, it's, it's been like this for probably at least a couple of decades. I don't know how far back it goes, but it, it is, I mean, this is a avenue that for Vancouverites could relate would be like, I often use Robson Street. Now, Robson Street isn't what it was uh, even just five, six years ago, sadly. It mm -hmm. used to be this sort of coarse sort of shop. All the shops were along there and stuff. It's kind of moved off. And it's not as, not as many trendy stores, the retail stores there now. But basically what happens in Stephen Avenue is during the work week, when there's not a lot of people out having drinks and the people are working and they're not shopping and they're, they're, they're at their workplace, it, it's open for traffic largely commercial traffic to get, okay. you know, vans, delivery vans and trucks and everything going through. Right. But every evening at around five o'clock and on weekends, there's these big gates that come up. No. And yeah, on either end, it's probably the span of like you get to gain if the, for, for people in Vancouver to, to relate, it'd be like taking Robson Street from Robson and Burrard yeah. all the way to Robson and um, Thurlow or maybe a little bit past that. Butte. Uh, Butte. Yeah. yeah, Robson and Butte. And you basically, that's all becomes pedestrian. And buskers come out and start to play music and patios are available. And um, and it's a really fun vibe. It's mm. a, it's a, I mean, obviously not during COVID, that's not happening. But and, and of course, it, Calgary's kind of dead in general right now with the oil and gas sector. Yeah. It's really too bad. But yeah. And I've often wondered, like, it's too bad we didn't see something like that develop. I mean, Granville Street, the city uh, approved the sort of night nightlife scene on the weekends in the summertime. They cut off, they break, they shut off Granville Street from cars, which I think was genius. Yeah. Um, but it seemed like it took a pandemic for the city to see this. And now I, I drive around and I see these temporary patios and there's people out there and they're having a good time and they're yeah. enjoying it. Yeah. And it's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Could we see this go from being temporary to permanent? Or are we going to be going back to like this unfun city where as soon as COVID's over, everybody has to go back inside? Do you know, I don't think we're ever going to go back and, you know, to the way things were on yeah. in many areas of what we do. Okay. Um, I'm hearing that right across the board. So I think we need to just keep looking forward. Yeah. Um, 
And specifically to the patios, actually, you'll be happy to know on Tuesday, we just extended that okay. until for one for one full year. Oh, fun. Yes. So we've got winter, yeah. which will be interesting and yeah. get big coats on. And yeah. I don't know how it won't be used rain. as much, but it's like the bike lanes, They're not as used as much, but but they'll be used. We have sunny, used. cold yeah. days. Yeah, get sure. out there with a warm jacket. Um, and then into another summer. And then we'll really get a sense of people. Because what we've done is we've given some certainty to businesses that they can plan now for the next 12 months in this economic recovery. Yeah. Um, how to best. So they'll spend maybe a bit more on their furniture. Or they'll be able to create a bit more of a permanent structure to keep their patrons safe and make it look nice. Um, there are some patios that are pretty like just put it up and see what happens. And yeah. so I think that's given some certainty to businesses. But ultimately, it was a matter of survival for those businesses. If they didn't get those patios, they would have closed. Right. And the, the shock to our local economy, I don't even think we can really understand because not only is it the business owners, it's the people they employ. Yeah. And it's just the general getting people outside and um, in a safe way, in a physical distance way, uh, with mm-hmm. the provincial health regulations, mm-hmm. but but stimulating the the economy with yeah. with buying things. And, I think it's um, a win for everybody. I mean, have you gone to any of these patios? Oh yeah, they're so fun. Oh, I, I've been to yeah. places that I had actually would never go because right. we drove along. We said, "There's a seat there. Yeah. Pull over." And yeah. I actually went uh, after a walk with my mom of all people. Um, in and uh, on the west side there, the beach, and we were thirsty and there was a patio and we once we sat down we thought we would never have come to this particular right you know you have your places yeah. that you go to Do you remember which place it was you know it was one of the little kitschy yeah. bars on uh, broadway on west yeah. broadway you know you've got um uh is it elwoods and there was a few yeah, and yeah. they were full and this one happened to be empty yeah. uh so anyways it was great you yeah. try somewhere new and um i think that's actually a good part of it too is we go outside of our regular spots that we like to go to yeah. where we can kind of guarantee parking and guarantee a seat yeah and we try new things and new businesses i think it's a great opportunity for yeah the city totally board. and it was a huge success like when we yeah. were, we actually um uh had a map that showed all the businesses that took up the temporary patio program and they are peppered all over the city yeah so that just meant in my opinion it wasn't one it wasn't just the downtown core no was it all it over the place everywhere yeah. so it's a great success yeah oh that's great well, you're, you're right. There's going to be a lot of things that we'll never go back from. And, and I'm glad because there's the nice thing about this pandemic that will come out from it is years later, we'll be looking back and going, wow, like there are a lot of things that human beings as a, as a, as a race, as a humans on the planet, we're just way too complacent with. Mm-hmm. And uh, and f- kind of the very disruptive in a negative way, but it also in some positive way. My favorite patio that I like seeing, yeah. I love is on Fourth Avenue as well. It's my favorite ice cream. My wife and I love it. It's, oh, it's rain, rain or shine. shine? And they, yeah. And of course, they built that patio. I think before all this. It's stuff a parklet, happened. and so they're What's like. What's that called? A well, parklet. It's a parklet. So they went through the permitting we were talking about. I, so yeah. Blair and Josie, okay. owners of Rain they're and the Shine, owners. they're okay. fabulous. They're yeah. friends of mine. Yeah. Um, and about a year before this whole thing hit with COVID, this yeah. pandemic hit, they went through the whole process of getting an, an authorized parklet where they take. So it was a very expensive labor-intensive process right um and now of course everyone's just got parklets all over the place so but they were really the champions of west forth to say we could put a we could put a patio on a parking spot they should get some kind of royalties for all the the new parklets that come out (laughs) (laughs) that place is like man that place is so great if you've never been to rain or shine i love that place i don't even know the owners but oh they're they're, they're fabulous yeah okay uh to finish this off i want to go back to politics i want to talk a little bit about npa Mm mm-hmm which is the uh, nonpartisan association. It's Vancouver's oldest political party. Uh, and you ran under the NPA banner. Wait, did you know that Peter Brown, one of the founders of Canaccord's grandfather, yeah. founded the NPA? I did not know that. Yes, he made sure I knew that. Oh. And I, <laughs> <laughs> um, when I first got elected, uh, he's very proud of that um, detail, and so he should be. Yeah. Yes, longest standing political party in Vancouver. In Vancouver. Uh, and, and you ran under the NPA banner, uh, and then later you chose to remove yourself and and put put yourself in a position of as an independent uh, city councillor. Um, so my first question for you: What are your plans uh, for running in the future? Yes, well, I plan to run okay. in the future. Yeah. Uh, I definitely plan to run again, um, and you know, the jury's out okay. on if I'll run as an independent or not. Okay. Vancouver is pretty 
Um, Vancouver likes their political parties, Vancouver voters, and um, I think it's and really the two main ones are. There's two main ones, right? Well, or is it more than two? And I would say there's more now. Yeah, yeah more? I think we've got, um, you know, well, what would be the two main that Well, you the two that come to my mind. See, this is what's kind of <laughs> good about having, see, Mo's so, Mo, Mo, Mo Mir, who I listened to your podcast with him, and he's great. But he's yeah. really plugged in politically. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah. And I'm not so much, and that's most of my listeners aren't. So I got to give a bit of a, so I just know there's vi- uh, there's vision right, and NPA. Okay. And, and the part that I'm confused about by NPA is nonpartisan association just with the the title? I think to myself, look, how can you be a party of people who have like totally differing views? Like, what's the point of that? Like, shouldn't you just all be independents? You're singing from my song sheet. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's a few political parties. Vision is one of them for sure. Probably uh-huh. one of the younger ones. Okay. Uh, the newer ones, um, and 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 others. But I, I, yeah, I would say that the um, NPA I, I ran because their sort of ethos is fiscally responsible, socially progressive. And uh, so, yeah. you know, I think it lands us really in the center. But sure. as a local government where we're stewards of the public purse, we have to have like a sense of responsibility around that, which um, is to look at everything, I think, through a fiscal lens, but also recognizing that it's 2020 and we need to be progressively social or we need to be socially mm-hmm. progressive in our mm-hmm. policies. For me, that struck a balance. Um, and your, you know, I appreciate your vulnerability there that you're sort of maybe not as switched in perhaps as Mo to politics, but I certainly wasn't when I ran at that level either. Right. So I um, was asked to run actually by Kirk LaPointe, who was the MPA mayoral candidate in 2014 and lost by a hair to yeah. Gregor Robertson. Okay. And then I, um, he chose not to run again, but then Ken Sim, who I also know through the business world, previous to politics, threw his name in the hat, and Ken's a great leader, and sort of reignited my interest in running locally. Okay. Um, so that's really how I came to run with the MPA. Both leaders I know and trust to be fiscally responsible and socially progressive and lined up. And one of the first questions I said was, when we get to the table on an issue, how do we vote? Because we talk about block voting in politics. Right. And that was very clear that's not what we want you to do. We want you to use your individual experience, critically think, use your own intelligence about any issue, discuss, find consensus, and vote accordingly. So that's what I think we have, um, or that's what was the intent, and I still think those are very important characteristics of anyone that's in local government. Mm-hmm. So, okay, that's good. Thank you for that. That's a good answer. Um, and I actually did have a note here to talk about Ken Sim. So he's announced that he, I believe he announced that he's planning on running yeah. again for mayor. Yes. And I believe that, the, as you say, the jury's still out on what political party he's going to run under. Um, and I think there's a suggestion or there's been some notions that he might start his own political party. Do you have any insight on that? And if he were to, so that's a two-part question, so do you yeah. have any insight on that? And if he were to start his own political party, would you consider being part of that? as opposed to being independent? Well, it's tough to say without knowing uh, what that what that is yeah. uh, in terms of um, what that platform would be. But Ken is a leader. I think he's a great person. He's smart. He's mm-hmm. proven track record. Um, but as you started off er- very early in this conversation is sort of this um, sweeping generalization that we can sort of run government like we run business. And I would actually have maybe agreed with that before I got started, and now I see that it is very different. It is very different. So, you know, I, I think what's critical for any mayoral candidate is they are super engaged, especially with this much run-up. I think Ken announced last year that he'd be running, is to be engaged in the issues that we're dealing with right now right. and to create and develop uh, and engage with stakeholders to figure out what is that political platform that you're going to run on, yeah. and that will be the basis for you know, raising membership and getting money to to have a successful campaign. Right. I don't know that Ken's totally flushed that out yet. So, um, but we we do talk for mm-hmm. sure. And he, like I said, he was a friend before we all got started here. So yeah. continue that on for sure. Rebecca, has there been any, um, in recent history, anybody who's run as an independent in Vancouver and been able to be successfully elected as an independent? I don't think so. No. Or you could be the first. I could be the first. I mean, look at J- Jody Wilson-Rabel pulled it off. She did. And we've had other examples of uh, independent, you know, the, I forget the lady's name, but she was an MLA for the district, for Delta, 
oh, for a number right. of years. I forget her name yet yeah, now. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I would definitely um, not... I, I would definitely say that now that's my plan yeah unless in a you know it's a difficult one i want to get yeah. i do i do want to continue working for the city in this way it's a great yeah. honor to enjoying serve it. and i'm enjoying it and there's yeah. important work that we're doing that we're not going to finish in two years and no. i think that's why people run again yeah to sort of see something through yeah um and i think it's important to people to have incumbents we're an almost entirely new council right and people are saying you know are you guys getting much done but there's a lot of people learning while working right now and I think we need some incumbents in that next round. So I, I'm the wheels are turning every day about yeah. how that looks for me. Yeah. Um, and I haven't, I don't believe, burnt any bridges. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it. No. That's I think not, the message it was never really, my goal. I think the message, it sounds like to me the message is really clear. You're going to run again. What, what banner that's under um, is yet to Time be decided. Time will tell. Yeah, okay. Um, let's jump to city council. Um, I'm going to throw this, this kind of coming out from left field, but... The Greater Toronto Airport Authority was a merger of seven municipalities in 1998. Mm. And today the city council is composed of 25 city council, which actually used to be bigger until Doug Ford right. cut it down. Cut everybody, gave, yeah, everybody gave him a lot of grief over it. And I said, yeah. well, I guess that's a smart move, yeah. in my opinion. Um, those 25 city councillors represent a ward of around uh, 100,000 people each, mm -hmm. along with the mayor. And I've never heard of any consolidation or amalgamation talk uh, here in Vancouver, but it seems to me that it would be very logical that we at some point in the next 10, 20 years have amalgamation. And I'm going to use an example of a policy that City of Vancouver right. implemented, we yeah. talked about earlier, which is the empty homes tax. Right. And it only applies to the City of Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, if you don't like the empty homes tax, you could just go build a place or buy a place on the other side, on the east side of Boundary Road in Burnaby, mm -hmm. and you're golden. Mm -hmm. um, and there's definitely lots of issues the city of Vancouver deals with that transcend into these other jurisdictions right next to us. Mm -hmm. And they're not very far away geographically. They're very, very close. Absolutely. Have you heard of any talk about an amalgamation? Would you be in favor of an amalgamation of municipalities? Well, it's interesting that you say that I was in, I'm originally from New Zealand, so I traveled back there last winter, their, our winter, their summer, uh, for a quick visit with some family in Auckland, very similar to Vancouver, Harbor City, did the same thing. They Recently? consolidated, yes, within the last, I think, three years. And okay. it was a huge effort. It was a, I would say, what you'd call a ballot box question or an election issue or election promise. And um, it's hard, it's very hard to do. It was messy i don't think you can do it without it being messy but once it was done everything makes a lot more sense even very much to the residents of the city so it definitely got my wheels turning because i'm working with metro so vancouver for those that don't know you say gvrd we call it metro in terms of the governing board right and that board is made up of directors that are all city councillors essentially elected in various municipalities i'm not right. on that board i'm on the water committee for metro but i'm not actually on the metro board um the funny thing about Vancouver is we have our very own um, charter. And I was going to mention this earlier. We mm -hmm. also have our own building code. So the thing that makes it complicated for Vancouver to amalgamate with other municipalities, I think, to me, the obvious thing is that the Vancouver charter means we have our own governing bylaws mm -hmm. and procedure. And we would have to actually start there. And even changing one line or one bylaw in the charter could take years hmm. because it's all done through the provincial government so it's not really like the metro you know government officials could get together it really has to be provincially led and probably endorsed by the municipalities right but then you're saying to a bunch of politicians who worked really hard to get elected you probably if you campaign for this if you really work hard for this you're you likely your gonna lose your job yeah so, so I, which I don't I think yeah i don't like, I, let's just shake, <laughs> let's try it. let's shake, shake it up here yeah so you need somebody yeah. like you mentioned doug ford to sort of come in and say this is what we're doing right whether you like it or not right so we'll see yeah, a lot of people didn't like it and a lot of people did mostly like ones it. that lost their jobs <laughs> yes absolutely but from an efficiency standpoint way more efficient getting, I mean, could you imagine having how many people are in vancouver city council well, there's only 10 of us and a mayor. Right. Yeah. Imagine 50. 25, 50. <laughs> but we also, 680,000 residents in the city yeah. are emailing us, and they all come to the same inbox, essentially. We all get the same emails, 
so there's no organization internally either. So the idea of a ward system where you're taking care of the critical issues for a particular area yeah. as a city councilor, I mean, that Quite makes appealing. logical sense, yeah. right? Um, and we don't have that here. No, we don't have that here. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. We would have to have a lot more counselors. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, the last topic I want to talk about on city council is financial accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I see at all levels of government incredible government waste. Um, and I'll bring one up as a good example. And just just poor use of public funds. And, and a good example that was really highlighted recently was when someone identified that a bunch of what looked like very expensive Herman Miller chairs were purchased by the city of Vancouver. And that was just in the press recently. I think, And I think the mayor came out saying that this was a, an error and that they were returned, uh, they were refunded or got, got a refund because, you know, why are we taxpayers paying for city fa- staff to sit in $1,300 share- chairs? Yeah. Um, and you've come from private sector where you know that when you're running a private business, you can't just go buy a bunch of $1,300 chairs unless you can really afford it, right? I mean, this is not the case. I mean, no. you got to watch your pennies. Yeah. Even if we don't have pennies anymore. Yes. So, Rebecca, in your view, do you think there's enough accountability around the way in which um, the city of Vancouver's funds are being managed? And is there any improvements we can be making there? Well, I'd start by saying there's always improvements that mm-hmm. we can make um, in everything that we do. And we need to start from there. So... No, I, I definitely think that there is um, a lack of trust I hear about between the public and the way m- money is managed at the city. And then we have to ask ourselves, where are people getting that evidence from? And I think it's from, um, you know, real basic services not being done to a level where the general public feels like my money's well spent in this city. And we can debate about why that is, um, but I think at the end of the day, we are a local government. You know, I sort of look at it like, and we talked about this during the pandemic, what does it cost for us to keep the lights on? You run businesses, you run financial um, portfolios. If you don't know what it costs to keep the lights on and you just do everything all the time, I think you're very easily opening yourselves up to be, uh, we're opening ourselves up to be, um, to, to be seen as mismanaging money. Sure. So it's not about taking things away. It's about an understanding and a level setting. And it's been a point of frustration for a number of uh, us city councillors who are looking for more fiscal responsibility coming out of City Hall, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. The chairs issue, I mean, that... That wasn't just about optics. People were saying, oh, that's terrible optics. It's not actually just about optics, in my opinion. We bought the chairs. So it's <laughs> right. not about whether or not yeah. someone saw that we bought the chairs. It's actually yeah. that the chairs were purchased and delivered at the end of May. And I know business owners that when the pandemic hit, March 12th, everything yeah. got shut down. Yeah. It was like can- canceling POs left, right, and center, which I know is really difficult for people on the receiving end of those POs. But at the end of the day, you stop. What do we need to keep the lights on? Right. And then we reconsider what are those extras that we were buying that maybe we should hold off of. And those chairs were delivered at the end of May, I think, mm-hmm. maybe early June. Um, or they w- the order went in. So anyways, the details are there. But I think at the end of the day, um, that's not a responsible purchase for. And we had a lot of emails and concerns. <laughs> I'm from sure residents. you did. People sending us photos of their chairs that they were sitting on <laughs> at home <laughs> saying... You know, so I think, and I think there is like, we we laugh, but I honestly think it, it there's a level of um, concern, and it's a bit insulting mm-hmm. for people who work hard and after tax money. Well, it's refreshing to hear you say that. It, you know that it's because bit, it is in property taxes mm-hmm. is after tax. It's mm-hmm. it's when all the other taxes are gone, then they pay property tax. And um, I think we've got to stay out of judging whether or not people can afford it. That's yeah. not really the business of government. Right. There has to be some level of autonomy there. Yeah. Um, and, and we've got to be responsible. And people know whether or not it's being treated that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's really nice to hear. Thank you for that. I will say that I think I'm like many people in my sort of uh, category, high taxpayer, is that my issue is far less with how much I tax I pay, but how my taxes are being used. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I had uh, Andrew Wilkinson on a couple of months ago, and I talked to him about how, you know, in my world, in the financial services world, public companies 
are required to report their financial statements with with tons of disclosure every three months, four times a year. Mm-hmm. So you have a quarterly statements, and then you have once a year you have an annual report. And on your annual report, there's not only an annual report, there's a management discussion analysis, and there's uh, other annual filings that go into really deep detail about what's going on. It makes sense because uh, regulators for you know the last century have ensured to make sure we don't have any um, misuse of um, the public markets and and public companies you know maybe uh, pulling the the wool over people's eyes are required to pu- properly document how investors' monies are being used, mm-hmm. and it's demanded by that community because if if you're not giving proper disclosure as a public company, you'll get crucified. People just sell your stock. You know, analysts will say this is a terrible company. They're not they're not being properly disclosed. Yet in the government world of government, there's a once a year filing. Right. And even those filings, uh, what's the fiscal year end for the city of Vancouver? Is it March 31st or is it, I'm not sure what it, maybe December 31st? No, it's December 31st. December 31st. Yeah. I won't see the financials for the city of Vancouver until April. So if I want to know how the city's done with its spending in the middle of this pandemic in 2020, Mm -hmm. I won't even have a glimpse of that until April of 2021. Right. And by that point, whatever spending has happened, whether it's Herman Miller chairs for 1300 bucks a piece or something else. Yeah. There's just very little transparency around the spending habits of the city. I would agree with you, but I would also say um, that we need to capture that input from the public at the beginning of the process, which Mm -hmm. is actually happening now. And we do undertake a um, participatory budgeting process where we put out and there's criticism around it. You know, the questions are sort of geared towards getting answers that are in that direction and that we get that. But you can email in and say, I looked at it. Here's what matters to me as a resident of Vancouver. Here's where I think we should be spending money. Mm-hmm. As you know, sales reports and those sorts of filings are, here's what happened in the past. Sure, there's accountability, but when it comes to government, you're not ever really gonna be able to influence change. So I think influencing change starts when we create the budget. Okay. And that's happening uh, generally, the process starts August right through till December, okay. and the budget's voted on very last thing of the year in December. Um, but I take your point for sure um, that there is a lack of um, transparency. Transparency there, yeah. and um, and it's not like the accounting teams at the city of Vancouver. I'm not trying to just pick on the city of Vancouver. This is an observation for all levels of government, right? But it's not like the accounting teams at the city of Vancouver have just got a pile of receipts that they haven't tabulated for the entire year. And they're like, oh, well, it's, uh, you know, December 1st. Let's, Let's get, get to work in. now, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they know. They could show it. Oh, they know with pinpoint precision, mm-hmm. right up to the, probably within the next couple of days or weeks. And so for me, the ask as a taxpayer to know what the city of Vancouver's, you know, revenues and expenses have looked like from one quarter to the next, mm-hmm. even if they're unaudited for three of those four reporting periods, and then mm-hmm. just the one audited one is the annual report that comes in a year. Yeah, I think that regular level of transparency it also makes the people who are spending the money feel more better. accountable. No, not oh, feel better, oh, more accountable oh, yeah. because like. If I'm working in city, you know, I'm, I'm a city staffer, yes, yes. and I have to be, I'm only made accountable once a year, and mm-hmm. it's wrapped up into an entire year's worth of spending, but I'm in the, I don't know, pick a department, I'm in engineering. Yeah. And then every quarter, someone's going to possibly ask me, why did you spend X number of dollars on new piping or whatever? Uh, like, it's, it makes me more accountable as well. Yes. Well, you'll be happy to know yeah. one thing that we don't have, but that we passed a motion and it's being actively worked on. I actually sit on this committee and it's a really important effort is the delivery of an uh, auditor general. Okay. So we have never, even though most large cities across Canada have an auditor general, we have never had one. And um, Councillor Hardwick, who was with the MPA also, moved this initiative actually this time last year and has been shepherding this process through. And it's been challenging to say the least, but we have council support for an Auditor General's office that will be able to go and say, okay, you know, right now, the next three months, we need to really look and see our renovations and project management. How are we spending? Like, what's our furniture situation look like? And they'll get in there and they'll say, yeah, we didn't need to spend this kind of money over here. And so eventually what I think you're going to get is a cultural shift. Because when you talk about people in a department, we want to have people working at the city. And we have fantastic staff at the city, let me just say. We have absolutely fantastic. And we need them. Yeah, and they're great. Yeah. Um, 
but we also need them to kind of feel like I feel, like a responsibility, yes. public purse. That's right. How do we do this the smartest way that's in sort of respect of the taxpayer? Yeah. And that we serve the taxpayer. And, you know, I think I'm not suggesting at all that that doesn't exist at City Hall. I actually think that it does. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think from the from the transparency and auditing perspective, this Office of the Auditor General will be an excellent addition to yeah. the accountability of the city. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I like that idea. Yeah. Rebecca, this has been great. Had you for well, quite, thanks for sticking around. Okay. This has been really good. Yeah, it's been good. Yeah, great. Um, when is the next election? Two years. Two years. So yeah, you got lots of time halfway. till to get things, more stuff done. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Really important. So people want to follow you. Best place to follow you is probably on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rebecca Lee L E E Bly. Yeah. Um, is my Twitter handle, and you can find my contact info to email me at the city. Uh, phone me i'm my favorite part of the job is engaging with people awesome yeah and as you said uh one more plug you want engagement from people who live in vancouver and and work work here the city wants that feedback um how how do people if they 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 do have a particular issue over something then they want to get is it just an email address they send yep uh so if there's all of the counselors have profiles Mm -hmm. on our website if you just google it and um, we actually get the emails to our inbox. We don't have tons of staff that are filtering emails. I read all of my thousands of emails a week. So, um, and uh, attempt to get back to everybody as I can. So working through them is a big part of the job. So yeah, email and you'll get straight to me. And I would say it's really interesting because I know some of your listeners might be business owners. I really see an opportunity for businesses to help inspire civic engagement in these issues with their teams as employers. Mm-hmm. So whether it's talking about civic issues, bringing things up in meetings, talking about things outside of just the, you know, having worked in private, the private sector, yeah, I, I think, and we, you know, when I worked in the private sector, the big debate was the HST. And I, I actually think that my boss at the time um, was asked to run for government because he was so involved in the HST debate. So, I, I, you know, that really inspired me as well. So, you know, I think it's really important, especially for younger organizations that hire a younger demographic, but a professional demographic, to really talk about civic issues and get them engaged. Yeah, great. I, that's a good plug, and I completely agree. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been great. So, Re- Rebecca Bly, City of Vancouver Councillor, the only independent councillor on, on, on council. Thanks for all the good work you're doing for our city. I appreciate you coming in and speaking with us today. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks, Rebecca.